You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 164. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention today. Thanks for all of the feedback for the past few episodes. I truly appreciate it. Thanks to all of the new listeners following us on Spotify. We're at almost 800 followers on Spotify, so thank you so very much for joining and being a part of this. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to Warrior Priest Podcast at Anchor FM and click the support button. Otherwise, you can go to the Warrior Priest Podcast at WordPress and sign up for the email subscription. And then every time a new episode goes up, it will appear in your inbox. And the rest is, of course, up to you. But that being said, I thought today we would go back and revisit an old friend of ours, Miyamoto Musashi from Dokodo. And I think it's important, I've talked about this in relation to other readings, such as Inazo Natobe's Bushido book. I think it's important to go back to texts from time to time and revisit them with new eyes. I've talked about this extensively in regards to the Stoics, Friedrich Nietzsche, even folks like Xenophon, Cyrus the Great, and others. When I read someone, and I think we're all the same in this, we read some book at some point in our life, and it has an effect on us, positive, negative, maybe even indifference. So we put it back on the shelf. Maybe we sell it at a used bookstore and forget about it. Time passes, and then it comes back into our head, you know, I'm looking for something to read. And, you know, there was, there was that one thing about that book or that author that actually did spark my interest in the moment. Or maybe I need to go back and reread that book because I've been talking to friends or family and they really got something out of that. Maybe I just wasn't in a good place. Maybe I wasn't ready to read that, whatever it might be. Then we go and we pull the book back off the shelf. We order it off Amazon, whatever it may be. We reread it with a new set of eyes. We're more mature, maybe more tread taken off the tires. And we discover something in that book by that author that we didn't see before, that we didn't appreciate. And it's not because we were dumb or we didn't get it. It's that we were at a point in our life when we couldn't. And therefore, we couldn't appreciate what that author was trying to communicate to us. So then we appreciate it with a new set of eyes. We put it back on the shelf. And we think to ourselves, well, now that's great. I got it. I got what I, what I was looking for from the book. I understand why other people have such high regard for the book. I'm done with that book. Okay, that's fine. But if that book did have an impact on you, if it, if it did prove influential to you, why wouldn't you go back then and revisit it from time to time to mine it for more gold? Why say, I got what I needed from it, I appreciate it now. I hold it in high regard. I'm good. Okay. But if it is that important to you, is that really the way that we should proceed then? I think of it in terms, at least for myself and my wife, for example, we've read Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink so many times, I have whole chunks of the book memorized. Because every time I read it, something new pops out at me that forces me to go back and rethink and reassess what I am thinking in regards to the principles laid out in that book and how to better express that to folks that I talk to and promote the book to. In fact, as a pastor, when people come to me for marriage counseling, that's the book that I give them. I keep a dozen copies of the book 
on hand in my office so that when folks come to me and say our marriage is in trouble and this is why we want to get a divorce, this is why we want marriage counseling, this is why we're going to separate, I say, have you taken 100% responsibility for everything in your marriage? And without fail, they look at me with a confused look on their, on their eyes, on their face, as if to say, what are you, dumb? Like, or I don't speak Mandarin, so I don't understand what you just said. So then when I explain that it's not a 50-50 relationship, marriage is not 50-50, it's 100-100. Because if you're 50% in on a marriage, what are you holding out the other 50% for? Another marriage? Another person? Something else? Why are you not completely and unconditionally committed to making your marriage work every single day? They don't understand that. It's a new idea to them. They've never heard those words expressed by anybody to them. Therefore, I say, read this book, read the first chapter, and then come back next week and we'll discuss the first chapter of the book. And as you read the book, I think what you're going to grasp is that this is actually very beneficial in helping you understand why your marriage is in breach, why you want to separate or get divorced, why you're not communicating with each other anymore, why you feel like you're stuck in place. And again, without fail, every married couple who has read the book all the way through and committed themselves to that stayed married. Every couple that I counseled that did not read the book, one spouse did and the other didn't, or they started, then they stopped and said, we just didn't really get anything out of the book. They all got divorced without fail. It's literally 100-100 when it comes to that, which I find phenomenal. It's remarkable that that is so clearly like delineated in that way. So I think it's important then when it comes to a book, if you find it influential, if it does have an impact on you and it does change the way that you think or you behave or you speak, I think it behooves us then to revisit that book from time to time, maybe every two years, three years, depending on how important it is to you, to see it with fresh eyes, to reassess what it was about it that originally had such a profound impact on you. And then from that say, okay, how can I represent my thoughts based on my new reading of this old text? And for me, Musashi is one of those texts, like Natobe, like Xenophon, like Extreme Ownership, and like Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, and others. Go back, read them again and again and again, because it never gets old, right? It's like when I pick up 100 Years of Solitude by Garcia Marquez. My favorite novel, hands down, uh, 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Every time I travel, I try to take the book with me. My, my edition of the book is just beat to hell at this point. Why do I keep reading the book? Because I love it. I love it. If you ask me to explain why I love 100 Years of Solitude, it would take me longer to describe all the ways I love it versus you just reading the book. That's how much I love this novel. I love it more than the Brothers Karamazov, I love it more than Flannery O'Connor's short stories. I love it more than any other author or story that I've ever read. It just hit me. It's biblical. It's epic. It's beautiful. It's fantastical. It's mystical. It's everything that I personally want in a novel. So it literally touches every single taste bud in my brain and in my heart. And I can, again, I cannot talk about the book enough. But you may say, well, Donovan was talking about it on the podcast and I trust him and I want to go check that out. I've never even heard of the book 100 Years of Solitude. And you may read it and say, I don't get it. Totally acceptable. You're not me. Different life experiences. 
different approaches, different way of, of seeing things. But you may read the book and say, well, I don't see why Donovan likes it so much. I mean, I enjoyed it for what it is, but I don't really see the hype. Okay, put it on your shelf and come back to it in two or three years and then read it, give it a second chance. And if you read it a second time and you have the exact same opinion the second time, then it's not for you. Now you know. But maybe you do read it in two or three years. You come back with a different set of eyes, different set of experiences, and all of a sudden you go, oh, Aureliano Buendia, now I get it. Okay, I get it now. Okay. Then put it on your shelf when you finish it, come back to it in two or three more years, and God willing, all of a sudden now you discover, oh, now I get it. Okay. I do that with stuff that people recommend to me all the time. And I tell them, I, I didn't get out of it what I think you wanted me to, but that's probably just me. And I tell you what, in a year or two, I'll come back and I'll read it again and, and see if it's just me, right? So with Musashi then, back to the point, I want to go into his sixth point in particular in the Dokodo, which is do not regret your past deeds. Because I've talked about it in the last couple of months about what happens when as far back as I can remember, I didn't really feel like I had any self-worth. I still don't. I don't feel like I have any value. I don't contribute anything of actual value to the world. I feel that. It's, it's at an ontological level. It's like a part of my being. It's not a feeling. It's not an intellectual academic exercise. At the very core of who I am, that's a part of that. Which means then that every single day, to a greater or lesser degree, I am combating that feeling, that sense of I'm not worth anything. So you can show me my wife and kids. You can show me my home. You can show me my congregation. You can show me the books I've written, the article, the thousands of articles I've written, the tens of thousands of hours I've done podcasts and interviews. You can show me my gym. You can show me my students. You can show me my coaches and, and my training over the last eight and a half years. You can show me everything that I've accomplished and all of the people that actually rely on me for their livelihood. And you could lay it all out in front of me. For example, my Banned Books podcast, we've reached over 700,000 downloads for that podcast. That to me is astounding. And yet even that number tells me I could do better. Why? Why not just say that's amazing? Very few podcasters can say they have 700,000 downloads for their podcast. And yet I'm looking at it saying, why isn't it a million? Why isn't it two? Why, why am I not making more money from this podcast? And why am I not more? Because if you believe you have no self-worth, more is how you prove your worth. But what does more mean then? More money, more fame, more downloads, more um, award? Like what does it mean that people recognize you or that people depend on you for their livelihood? What does it mean when someone says, I was going to commit suicide, but I picked up the phone and called you. And because of that conversation with you, I didn't kill myself. Like I can actually look at that exchange that has happened more than once to me and say, there are people walking the earth today with families, with jobs who had a gun on their lap and they were sitting in their car or their truck and they called me and said, dude, I'm going to kill myself. And they're alive today because we had a conversation. And I say, well, no, it was, it, that was God at work through me, but it wasn't me. So I can't take credit for that, which on the one hand is pious and humble, but on the other hand, it's my way of deflecting that, that affirmation away from my lack of self-worth. Well, 
what happens then, of course, we get to Musashi and the Dokodo and we read this sixth principle, do not regret your past deeds. Well, as, as the example goes then, if you don't think that you have any kind of self-worth or any value to other people, all of your past deeds are going to have a regret there somewhere because you will dig and dig and dig through your memory until you can unearth something, one thing at least, one thing that proves you should regret all of this. This happened recently. Uh, members of my church, my congregation, they went to a different church because they were out of town and they ran into someone I went to high school with. And I have nothing but negative memories about this person. And yet this person has no negative memories about me. At least that's, you know, what he expressed to this, this couple. He only remembers one thing about me from ninth grade. And it was something very embarrassing. My, my parents were very poor when I was little and we didn't have a lot, which means we, and we lived at this time, we lived way out in the country, about eight and a half miles out of town and 18 miles out of town, sorry. And so we couldn't just jump in the car and run to the store if we needed something. And we couldn't do it because we couldn't afford it anyways. Well, it was Halloween and I was excited to go to the Halloween dance dressed as a vampire, but we didn't have any hair gel. So my mom improvised and used Vaseline. And if you know anything about Vaseline, you know it doesn't wash out of hair easily. So for a month after the Halloween dance, my hair, I looked like a guido. <laughs> I had slicked back hair and there was nothing. I woke up and went to bed and my hair was the exact same shape and size. Everything was the same. It took a month for that Vaseline to, to wash out of my hair. Now I hadn't thought about that in decades. And then as a joke, this person got a gift, gave it to the couple to bring to me. And there's a little thing of Vaseline and on top is an arrow pointing to the back and on the back, it says not to be used for hair gel. Now that's a joke. And it's said in, you know, good natured jest. And it's something that he apparently remembered fondly. It sent me back to ninth grade as soon as I saw it in the bag. I didn't even have to read the back of the, the container of Vaseline. As soon as I saw the Vaseline, I was in ninth grade again. And I'm 52. And all the emotions, all the memories, all the feelings came back. This is my bully. This is one of my bullies from high school. This is what he remembers about me. This is embarrassing. This is shameful. That's not what he's thinking, but that's what I'm thinking. And now it's all regret. Now I'm back there. I'm locked into that memory for the rest of, of church because it happened on Sunday morning before church started. So now all through service, all the way out the other side of church, all through lunch, I'm thinking about this. And it's just chewing at me like termites eating the foundation of a house. And I know it's childish and foolish, and I know it's not real for me to live in the past, and I know I'm self-editing my memories, but even in spite of that, it's feeding back into, see, you're not worth anything. Even in ninth grade, you were, you were a fuck up. Even in ninth grade, you did things that were embarrassing that people remember to this day. And so if you were to ask me, would you ever attend a class reunion? My answer would be, I would rather live in North Korea than go to my class reunion. And I'm not joking. <laughs> I'll take my chances with the North Koreans. I have a better chance of coming out of that unscathed. <laughs> but that's what I carry with me. I could go to my class reunion and nobody has anything but positive things to say about me because they're all 52, 53, 54 years old now too. But for me walking into a class reunion, I'm back there again. I'm that kid again. And I don't like that kid. I don't like who I was. I don't like anything about that experience. 
But that's 52-year-old me saying these things. I'm self-editing my memories. And maybe because of who I was in ninth grade and, and the circumstances of my life in ninth grade, I wasn't able to see myself in ninth grade the way other people saw me because I'm not able to see myself the way other people see me today. So maybe it wasn't just a matter of me being in ninth grade. Maybe there's something deeper going on there that I've carried with me all these years. And being reminded of that hurts. For other people, it doesn't because they don't carry that around inside. But I do apparently. <clears throat> and it's like a dormant germ that's just waiting to be activated. And so I have to be hypervigilant about these things because like I said, I had a, a guy come up to me after church. He's like, hey man, you looked really stressed in church today. You were really serious. Anything going on? I said, no, I just, I, you know, I was kind of dippy and kind of disjointed this morning. I couldn't really focus. So I was really focusing hard on just kind of not saying or doing the wrong thing in front of the congregation, which was true. But second to that was the fact that this memory sent me off in a different direction that was not positive. And therefore I had to kind of lock things down for the rest of the church service. Why though? Why do we regret our past deeds then? Why do we edit our memories in such a way that they feed into the, the worst, most negative deconstructive things that we can do to ourselves? Why can't we just look to the past and have our nostalgia be positive and constructive and good? And maybe for you that's true. And if it is, I think that's a blessing and a gift. Lean into that as much as possible. Share that with other people express that to other people so that they can hear from another person. You don't always have to look over your shoulder at the past and have it be negative. You don't have to beat yourself up and regret what you did in the past. I'm a big proponent of you to have nothing to regret about your past so long as you learn from it. I believe that to the core of my being. The only reason that any of us have to regret the past is if we learn, if we didn't learn from it. But if I think you learn from your past, let's say mistakes, your past blunders, your past choices that turned out to be the wrong choice. If you can learn from that, I call that failing upwards. To me, falling down, failing downwards is when you keep repeating the same mistakes over and over and don't learn from them. And then you have that kind of woe is me mentality, that kind of passive aggressive searching for sympathy and pity kind of mentality. I just can't get out of my own way kind of mentality versus, well, why can't you get out of your own way? Is it because you're not being thoughtful? You're not taking a step back and asking yourself, why do I keep doing this to myself or to other people? At a certain point, for example, for an addict, you, you, you hit bottom, right? You're not crazy completely. You're not in jail permanently and you're not dead. But you hit your bottom at that moment when God reveals to you, here are your options now. From this point forward, it's either you have a mental break and you don't come back from it and you end up, end up institutionalized you end up in jail for anywhere from 12 to 24 years or life, or you die. These are your options going forward. When you hit that point, when you hit your bottom and that is revealed to you and you say, okay, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired about being sick and tired. What do I need to do next? I need to go to an AA meeting. I need to check myself into rehab. I need to do whatever it takes to not end up institutionalized in prison or dead. And especially when you make up your mind, you make that conscious choice to get clean and sober. It is the most important decision of your entire life to that point. And every day after that, especially those first 90 days or so, every single day, this is the only thing that matters. I need to stay clean today. 
I need to stay sober for the next hour. I need to stay clean for the next 30 seconds. I need to make the next best choice right now. And then as you develop and you grow in the program and you mature in your experience of being sober, you make sobriety the most important part of every day, but you don't allow it to consume your day. And as a consequence then, the longer you're sober, at least for myself, just speaking for myself, the longer I'm sober, the, the simpler it is for me to look back and say, well, I did that because I was on drugs because now I have experience and I have engaged with other people, other drug addicts in recovery, but also other addicts who are not in recovery. And in both sides of the house, I can look at people in recovery and go, that's me. I did that. That's my story. But then I can look at people on the other side of the house who are still addicts and say, that was me. I said the exact same things. And I can learn from those then, learn from my past choices, learn from those people in the present. And so I don't regret what I did as an addict, which is ironic. Talking about self-worth, it's, it's ironic to me or a paradox to me, dichotomy even, that I have so much regret about my life, but not about that. And maybe that's because I've spent 30 years since, or whatever it is, I'm terrible at math, 1998, October 5th, 1998, when I went to my first meeting. Since that moment, I do not have regrets about what I did when I was drinking and using drugs. But as the years go by, and I spend more time and thought about the consequences of my addiction, the addiction of my father, the addiction and how it affected my family, both in the past and in the present, I see more and more things that were affected by my household and then by my choices after I left my house. And so this, it's this constant thing for me then, and maybe it is for you or maybe it needs to be for you, this constant thoughtfulness about what can I learn from the past? What can I learn about my past deeds, right? And so for Masashi then, if we dive into it, do not regret what you have done, what he writes is, and I guess also, you know what? Let me do this for you too. If you're not familiar with uh, Miyamoto Musashi, let me just read a little bit about him to you and introduce him to you. Okay, Miyamoto Musashi, if you don't know, or you don't know a lot about him, he was a solitary man, and there's a reason for that. He had actually dedicated his life to the study of swordsmanship, to strategy, to philosophy, and to Zen Buddhism. And Musashi was not a samurai. He was a ronin. He was a vagabond. He was a masterless samurai. And he traveled all over to test his skills in duels against other warriors. And that's why I say he was a solitary man. That's not an accident. He won 61 duels. That's the legend. He was undefeated in 61 duels. And he was unique at the time because he fought with two blades. Most samurai fought with one katana, one blade. He fought with two. And as a consequence, he developed a very unique strategy, a very unique style of swordsmanship for his times. So you show up for a duel with your sword and he pulls out two. It's an entirely different skill set to, to fight against two swords versus the one that you've been trained to fight against your entire adult life. That would be like showing up for a wrestling match or a boxing match. And then you're told that MMA rules apply. You may be great as a boxer or as a wrestler, but are you proficient at all these other martial arts that go into MMA? Because if you're not, now you're at a significant disadvantage 
because now all of a sudden the rule set changed and therefore your strategy must change. But if you don't have mixed martial arts training, if you're a boxer, but you have no wrestling or you're a wrestler, but you have no boxing and you have to adapt to life on the ground or life striking, it, it's very easy to be defeated in those moments because you're overwhelmed by the moment. Cause you don't like, what do I do against this? This isn't how we train. This isn't the rules that I train under. So he won 61 duels that way. But what comes out in his writings then, and which he kind of puts down at the end of his life as so many do in Eastern culture, I'm towards the end of my life. I'm not a warrior anymore. I'm an elder. I'm a sage. I'm a wise man. And so I'm going to pass on my, what I've learned. I'm going to pass on my experiences as this doctrine, as these teachings, so that hopefully the next generation and the generation after them into eternity can learn from me. And what's interesting then is that Musashi doesn't say, don't be a swordsman, don't duel, but he also doesn't promote it. What he does promote is self-mastery, disciplined, humble, thoughtful self-mastery. He says that this is the vehicle to self-mastery. If you want to be a master swordsman, a master painter, a master at anything, you have to have discipline, humility, and thoughtfulness. If you want to be an expert at anything, discipline, humility, and thoughtfulness. So what the Dokodo is, is a guidebook that he wrote down, not to become a master swordsman, but rather this is how I can guide you from my own personal experience in humility, self-discipline, asceticism, and personal development. Really what he's doing is a kind of pre-modern psychological study of how one becomes a master, an expert at his particular discipline, and then how to squeeze optimal performance out of it. So I'll try and remember to post a link to Dokodo in the show notes so you can read it all for yourself. Like I said, this is the second or third time I've read this on the show. So I just want to zero in on one aspect of the Dokodo. And that is, again, do not regret what you have done, principle number six. And as a consequence then, oh, by the way, Dokodo means the way of walking alone. There you go. The way, right? And again, Musashi famously said, if you see the way, you, you know, when you see the way broadly, you see it narrowly. And when you see the way narrowly, you see it broadly. And by way, he means like the path that you're on. So for example, in jujitsu, I see everything in relation to jujitsu. I've been doing Muay Thai for eight and a half years. I love Muay Thai. I love teaching it. I love training in Muay Thai. But I don't often apply Muay Thai to life. That, again, maybe that's just me at this point in my life. But I do apply jujitsu to everything in my life. It's much more philosophical for me. And so when I see jujitsu narrowly, that is when I'm training jujitsu specifically in the gym, that's what I'm focused on. It was like, how do I apply the techniques of jujitsu and the principles of jujitsu to my opponent in the moment when we're sparring? But then when I'm on public, the same principles that I learned in the gym, I apply to my life, such as don't get emotional, such as are you using more force than technique, such as stay relaxed, on and on and on. I apply all of these things from jujitsu to Muay Thai, to the other martial arts I study, to being a pastor, to being a father and a husband. I apply it everywhere. So by seeing the way of jujitsu in this case, narrowly, in the gym and, and also then psychologically, philosophically, what it is teaching me when I leave the gym, psychologically, philosophically, and even physically, 
I'm applying the principles of jujitsu broadly. And that's what he means about the way. Once you're on the path, can you see how the path is actually extremely broad and it applies to your entire life? If not, stay on the path and it gets wider as you go. But then as you see the path widen and you see the way in everything, it also then becomes very narrow at the same time. It's a paradox or a dichotomy. So that's what he's talking about here. That is that if you say, let's say again to the point here before we read it, I say, right, if, if you learn from your past mistakes, you have nothing to regret. That's a very narrow thing. That's a very broad thing to say. If you learn from your past mistakes, you have nothing to regret. That's a very broad, kind of generalized, abstract statement. But let's apply it to a singular event in your life, such as the analogy or the example I gave about ninth grade Halloween dance. What did we learn from our ninth grade Halloween dance experience? We learned to not use Vaseline as hair gel. That's what we learned, right? So that in the present tense, I can then say to my children, don't put Vaseline in your hair. Why? Funny story. That's just one thing. That's a very narrow example that I can apply broadly speaking. Don't put Vaseline in your hair if you want it to wash out. So I don't have to regret what I did in the past so long as I learned from it and I apply it narrowly in the present tense. And then from the narrow application, I can see other applications such as you should think more before making a rash decision such as substituting Vaseline for hair gel. And that may be a very small, very specific historical example. But the broader point is be more thoughtful and less impulsive. When you're in the moment and you're saying to yourself, I'm getting picked up in a half an hour to go to the dance and I've only got half my costume. Well, why didn't you get ready earlier? Why didn't you make sure that you had everything you needed for your costume before Friday afternoon? You, you're, you're in ninth grade. You have nothing but free time to think about these things, right? I can then apply that in the, in the present tense. Plan better. Prioritize and execute, to quote extreme ownership. Think before you act. Like these are all general principles, but if I think deeply, if I, if I give thought to that moment and why it causes me embarrassment in the present, all these years later, rather than live with regret about it, rather than feel ashamed about that moment, because I was in ninth grade and I didn't know any better and I didn't think before I acted, and I trusted my mother... <laughs> Instead, I can say to my kids in the present tense, well, what I learned from this very specific, narrow memory is be more thoughtful, plan things out better, don't wait till the last minute to do something, prioritize and execute. I can apply those to everything in my life, right? So principle six, Musashi, it's natural to have regrets, but this does not mean that you should live in a state of regret. It's totally normal. Regret is a feeling. It is. It's an emotion. So therefore, it's totally normal to have that emotion, to feel regret. Sadness, disappointment, shame, embarrassment, guilt, blame, whatever it may evoke in you, that's totally normal. So don't medicate it. But this does not mean then that you should live in a state that is, this is my default position. My default emotion, regret. My default thought process, regret. My default behavior and my choices, regret. Because what is that going to do? It's going to set you up for doing more regrettable things. So many people say that you should not regret anything. But I think what they mean is that they don't regret how things have turned out, even if they had to go through some difficulty and hardship to get there. So don't regret the outcomes. 
we do not regret what we have done. This is the only pos- this is only possible if you live intentionally and accept that mistakes happen. Learning occurs through those mistakes. Learning is how improvement happens. And how could we ever regret improving our lives? There we go. How could we ever regret improving our lives? How do we improve our lives? Let's read it backwards. Well, we learn through the mistakes we make. We learn through failure. That's how improvement happens. It's only then possible to learn from your past mistakes, your past choices, if you live intentionally and accept mistakes happen, which isn't always easy in the present tense or in the future because we look back with regret. I can't believe I said that in that meeting. I can't believe that happened. I can't believe in the middle of that argument I said those terrible things to her. I can't take them back. Okay, that may be true. You may have gotten fired from your job. You may have lost confidence with friends. Your coach may look at you differently now. Whatever it may be, you may look at yourself different now. But if we accept that people say dumb shit all the time, I do anyways, I don't know about you, but I do. And then after the fact, I sit on the edge of my bed at home and look out my window and go, why did I say that? Why did I say, why do I do that to myself? I constantly say the wrong thing to people. Why do I do that? And then I know why I do it. I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm emotionally drained, and things come out unfiltered. And then after the fact, I think, why didn't I just shut up and go home, right? And I keep doing it, that's the thing. (laughs) And maybe the people I talk to think nothing of it. Maybe they walk away and go, well, that's just Donovan, he's just weird. He's just quirky. Maybe, but I have to live with myself. (laughs) And if we live intentionally, we accept that mistakes happen, even bad ones, even catastrophic choices, right? Can we learn through those mistakes? It's interesting to me that so many people that I know who are veterans, who were at the tip of the spear militarily-wise, almost all of them are anti-war. And I ask them about it. I'm like, you were a soldier. You were elite. You were part of the special forces within your branch of the military. You've been in the heat of combat. Numerous times. You've been blown up. You've lost limbs. You came out decorated. You went to work as a subcontractor for a three-letter agency, so you had a really illustrious career that lasted decades. Why are you anti-war? And the answer is almost always the same. Because I've been at war, and I've seen it, and it's terrible, and it's worse than you can imagine, and it's nothing like the movies. And I wouldn't wish that on anyone. I I accept that 100%. That works for me. People ask why I don't want to relapse. Because I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict, and I've seen from the inside what addiction and alcoholism can do to a person, to their family, to everyone around them. Why would I want to go back there? And I think that's an important point, and I think that's something that we don't consider deeply enough and respect and have regard for deeply enough in the present, which is, When people have been through real life experiences and come back to tell about it, we should listen to them because they have firsthand experience and we don't. For them, war is not an abstraction, right? It's not an idea. It's not something that you play in the backyard. It's not something that you see on TV. It's real. And therefore the consequences are real. 
And as a friend of mine says, when you've tried to save a person's life on the battlefield and they died, even though you know intellectually it's not your fault, there is nothing that you could have done to save them, you still feel responsible. You carry that survivor's guilt with you for the rest of your life and no amount of medication, no amount of counseling and therapy, nothing that you do can alleviate the burden of that guilt. Instead, you just learn to live with it and you learn to live through it. And that's just one person's experience. Maybe it's different for you or people you know, but at least in my experience talking with this person, that's their experience. And because I've touched upon that in my own life, I've held people as they've died. I've held babies as they've died. And there's nothing I could do about it. But I still feel guilty about it. Because it's not a matter of, I wish it was me and not the baby. I wish it was me and not her. But rather the injustice of it the unfairness of it. Your parents tell you growing up, life isn't fair. And we accept that intellectually, life isn't fair. And the longer you live, the more you realize that's true. Scumbags and evil men prosper while good people suffer and die. It's not fair, 100%, but life isn't fair. Great. But then when you hold someone while they're dying, when they breathe their last breath into your face, when they die clutching your hand for all it's worth, like a drowning man reaching out for a life preserver. And there's nothing you can do except speak some words of comfort to them. You don't walk away from that. You don't just dust off your clothes and then move on to the next thing. That's a, that's a wound inside of you now. And it never closes, not altogether. And you can do so much to heal it. You can pray to God to close it, to heal it. And what's interesting to me about that then is that when I pray for God to take away my pain, when I take, when I pray to God to take away my feelings of having no worth, when I pray to God to take away the emotions and the memories of the people that I've held as they've died, he doesn't. <laughs> he just doesn't. Instead, he says, this is your cross. This is your burden. And it's necessary. And when I say why, when I ask why, the answer is always the same. Because I need to prepare you for what's coming next. And that is, I need someone who has the courage and the strength and the compassion and the words that I'm going to give him to speak into the pain. And that's you. You are called to be a prophet. You are called to speak the truth that I tell you to speak. And you will because that's your calling. That's what you're here for. And if you think speaking the truth is sexy, it's not. Especially when you're holding someone who's dying. Especially after you're washing the body of the dead person to prepare it for the mortician to pick up. It sucks. And if you've known anybody in your life who has died. Take that one person and say, well, yeah, that's somebody I loved, so that's different. Imagine God opens your heart to love everybody who you hold as they die, the same that you love that person. That's my experience. So that no matter what I've done, no matter what I've been through, every single person that I've held, the baby that I held, 18 holes in his heart, his name was Angel, and he died. 
because he had 18 holes in his heart. He was born that way. It's because his mother was sprayed with DDT. She worked in the fields picking tomatoes and strawberries and they spray the fields with DDT in Mexico. And so babies are born all the time with massive birth defects. You hold that baby and it's not fair. He never had a chance. It wasn't his fault. It wasn't his mother's fault. It was no one's fault except the person who made the choice to spray DDT on these people and poison them to death and or kill their children. That's their sin. That's on them. And I can't touch those people because they live a thousand miles away in a mansion surrounded by armed guards. And even if I went to that person's mansion and I killed that person, someone else would just replace them and the process would repeat itself. That's the regret I have. My impotence. My powerlessness to change the world for the better. But yet simultaneous to that then, I can also sit here and say, but I've held people as they've died and I've preached the resurrection to eternal life to them. And they died with comfort and hope. They died in peace. And I was allowed the privilege of sitting with them and being called to preach to them and help them get their other foot over death's door and into the resurrection. That's a gift. I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. So it's a burden and something I pray to have removed from me while simultaneously saying it's a great gift and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world because it's the most intimate moment you can have with another person. It really is. Because there's no time left. There's no time to screw around. There's no time to say, let me tell you a story that'll cheer you up. They're going to die in the next couple minutes. So you need to have an economy of words. You need to have an economy of emotion and an economy of choices, behaviors. And when you first do it, you're terrible at it. <laughs> but the more you do it, the paradox is you become more comfortable around it. In fact, you almost become friends with death in a certain sense. You smile at death because you know each other so well at this point. And you know, every time you run into him, he just reminds you, you're next. And I say, okay, I know, I know. But not today. Today I get to help this person put their other foot over the door and get into the resurrection. That's why I'm here. It's to shut you up so that God can have the last word. And we're all called in our lives to those kinds of intimate moments, to those kind of paradoxical moments where on the one hand, we're saying, please don't, don't, I don't want to be a part of this. Don't let me, don't let it be me. But then we walk away from it and say, well, thank God I was there. Thank God I got to be a part of that. Thank God I got to be there with her when she was dying so that I don't have any regrets about this. But it's natural to have those regrets. It's natural to live in the tension of that dichotomy of, on the one hand, can you please take this away from me? But on the other hand, saying, don't take this away from me. And so we can live in a constant state of regret. We can live in just one side of that dichotomy and say, why do you keep punishing me? What have I done that is so bad that you keep forcing me to hang out with dead people? Why do I have to be the last one that they talk to? Why do I have to be the last one that looks into their eyes and tells them it's going to be okay? Why? Because I know what's going to happen. They get to go, to, they get to go and take a nap. They get to rest. They're at peace. I got to get in my car and I got to go home. I got to talk to my wife and my kids as if everything's normal. Because death is normal. It is. 
It happens to all of us at some point. And yet, because that wound never closes, whenever I look at my children, every day, every single day, and I look at my wife, and I look at my congregation, and I look at my coaches, and I look at my teammates, what they don't know, because they wouldn't understand if I said it, is you're going to die. And I may be the person, the last person that you see. Every single person I interact with every single day, at some point in the conversation, I'm reminded by that little voice in my head, she's going to die. He's going to die. You've been there. You know what it's like. This one's next. And I had to live with that because I've experienced it firsthand. And so would I wish for any of you to experience that? Absolutely flipping not. <laughs> and yet it's one of the greatest privileges, if not one, the greatest privilege of my life to be allowed to be a part of that most intimate of all moments. And could I have done anything to change the outcome? No, actually, I couldn't. I'm called to be a witness, not an agent of change. There is no medicine that I can give to you when the doctor says or the nurse says, it's 15 to 30 minutes, anytime now. Because the internal organs start to fail. The lungs start to fill up with fluid. Things happen that let you know it's going to happen pretty quick now. And then it's just a matter of that person's will to live and how hard they cling to life versus letting go and going to sleep. And I've sat with people who died screaming and had nothing but regret about their life. And I've sat there with people who died holding my hand and telling me it's going to be okay and comforting me as they breathe their last breath. It's a matter of faith within the, within the Christian economy of faith. It's a matter of faith, but I've seen both sides. I've seen people die clawing the air and I've seen people go to sleep with a smile on their face and never wake up again. And so what happens when you live in a state of regret? You die screaming and clawing the air, but that's simply your last desperate gasp that comes out. It expresses itself finally as an explosion of sound and fury. But what you discover in those moments is this is the way the person's been living inside for most of their adult life. This, it's just been a silent scream. They've been clawing at the air for their entire life because they live in a constant state of regret, not just about one or two specific things, but just about their life in general, their spouse, their family, their job, choices, everything. They're also usually the most miserable people that you'll meet because they live with constant regret. Whereas those who have regrets about the past, but recognize this isn't what defines me as a person. I want to learn from this. I want to improve. Those are the people that you meet that have a certain peace to them. They have a certain happiness and, and satisfaction and, and gratitude to them because they recognize everybody makes mistakes. Everybody says and does things that they later regret. It's a human. It's normal. I don't have to let it become an anchor that holds me down and kills me. But if we live with regret and we make it our default position, it will destroy us in the end. It just, it absolutely will. I've seen it firsthand. Like I said, right at the graveside, I've seen it. And so to add to that then, to kind of go off on a little bit of a, a tangent at the end of the show here, but to stick to the point, do not regret your past deeds. 
The choices that we make hurt. That's true. But as a commentator on the Dokodo said, mistakes hurt, but they don't hurt as much as inaction or missed opportunities. And what he meant was no one is perfect. No one is complete. No one is a finished product in this life. And of course you can't change the past, which points us back to the first principle from Musashi, which is do not oppose the ways of the world. That is some things can't be changed. The way the world works can't be changed by you. Human nature can't be changed. The past cannot be changed. So you have to accept everything the way that it is. This is a stoic principle too, by the way. Literally to the, to the, 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 the letter. You have to accept the things the way they are and not as you would have them be. It's also a principle of AA. It's part of the serenity prayer. So do not dwell. This is the first principle. Do not dwell on or become overwhelmed by things that you can't control. Focus on what is within your sphere of influence. There are things beyond your control. The world, human nature, and the past, to name a few. But those are big ticket items, right? Those are big things. Instead, what we're doing every day then by learning from the past, by learning from our mistakes is, this is the way it is for everybody. And I can either dwell on these past mistakes, become overwhelmed by all of the mistakes I've made in my life, which by the way, as you get older, that list gets longer. And therefore, the amount of regret you have, it becomes greater. Or you can say, I have no control over any of that now. It's the past. And I have no control over the past. I only have control over right this moment. And so I'm going to focus on right now, which is within my control, my attitude, my choices. So I can take those past mistakes. I can take those past choices that I judge to be incomplete or regretful or lamentable. I'm going to take those. I want to use those as fuel then moving forward. So let's say in 2020, you were overwhelmed by all of the news and all of the noise about COVID. And so against your gut instinct, you got the shot. Maybe you were pressured into it by your family and friends. Maybe you had to for work because you, everyone else was doing it. And you thought, well, maybe I'm just the only one who's thinking the wrong thing. And you got the shot. And now you regret it because you're sick from it. It changed your DNA. You have now an autoimmune disease or you have one, but you don't know about it yet. And now you're worried about it because you see other people with blood clots. You see other people with the heart attacks. You see other people dying and you ask yourself, am I next? Did I make a terrible, terrible decision? And the answer scientifically, medically speaking is yes, you made a terrible life altering decision and maybe you don't die today. Maybe you don't develop blood clots today, but a hundred percent of everyone who got boosted is going to have some sort of medical emergency in the future because Pfizer's admitted it, Moderna's admitted it, the government's admitted it. We were field testing these things on people. So we don't actually know what the long-term consequences are. We're learning as we go. Okay, you made that choice and you can't undo that choice. Okay, fine. Now what? What are you going to do? Die? No, not today. What are you going to do instead? You're going to accept that you made that choice. You're going to accept that there was a missed opportunity to stand up, push back, say no, quit your job and find another job, whatever it might be. But again, no one is perfect and you can't change the choices that you made in the past. And so 
rather than dwell on, well, I should have, I could have, I would have, all of which is a complete waste of your time and energy because that's all in the past and you can't change it. Break free from those chains in the present tense. Break free from that regret. Learn from your choices. If you regret getting the shot, dedicate yourself in your free time to studying and learning and gaining knowledge about vaccines, for example, and government vaccines and the CDC and everything that you can about Pfizer, Moderna and COVID and the mRNA serum. Learn all of that and dedicate a part of your life then to warning other people. Be a medical prophet. Warn other people. I made this choice because of these, these factors and I regret my choice and I don't want you to make the same choice that I did. So I want you to learn from my choice. And if they don't listen, they don't listen. That's their choice. You have no control over that. But you do have control over how you react to your own choices. And this was critical for Musashi. If you think that you made a misstep, learn from that misstep. Even if you think it's a fatal, catastrophic misstep. Even if as a drug addict, you participate in something that ends up in the death of someone else and you're complicit. You pulled the trigger, you drove the car, you gave them the drugs they overdosed on, whatever it might be. You need to not just live and wallow in regret. You need to learn from that. And maybe you dedicate yourself to being, let's say, a sponsor in AA. Or you decide, you know what? I'm going to go back to school and get trained as a drug and alcohol counselor. I'm going to open a rehab center. Or I'm going to go work at a rehab center. Or I'm going to work with youth at risk in the inner city or in the rural areas. Which, by the way, is something that is often overlooked. We always talk about inner city youth and, oh, they're in trouble, right? Yes, they are, 100%. But so are rural youth. Just because you live in the inner city doesn't mean then that you have a a corner on the market when it comes to being at risk for drug abuse. Kids in the rural areas are just as at risk as kids in the inner city. It's just a different dynamic. You have to learn what to look for because the context will dictate how they engage it, how they get it, how they use it, where they use it at, who they're using it with, the behaviors that come about as a consequence. And so... Yes, inner city youth are at risk. Yes, economically disenfranchised people are at risk. But there's economically disenfranchised people in the country too. You don't think farmers aren't suffering? You don't think their kids aren't suffering? A kid is a kid. And poverty is poverty, whether it be poverty, material poverty, spiritual poverty, whatever it might be. And just because one is surrounded by skyscrapers and the other one is surrounded by corn, the kid's the same. And so what do we do? We then say, okay, we made a misstep here. All right. We, we took our eye off the ball. We, we bowed to pressure. We gave in. We did what we now regret. Okay, fine. In swordsmanship and in all martial arts for Musashi, one who practices these things is constantly faced with failure of the most humbling, painful variety. Their success is predicated on their ability to learn from that and then move through it, actually gain wisdom from that and improve. If you haven't been tapped a thousand times from a rear naked choke, I don't think you're training at the right gym. I've been tapped so many times. I couldn't tell you. Eight and a half years, I roll four times a week minimum, one to two hours per time. How many times is that? I don't know. Let's say 10 Minimum, I get tapped 10 times when I roll in an hour. Okay. Now take that 10, multiply it times four to five times a week, then multiply that times eight and a half years. 
Whatever that number is, that's how many times I've been tapped. <laughs> and that's just a general number. Some days it's more, some days it's less. But the point is, how do I learn? How do I teach jujitsu? From failure. What makes a great jujitsu teacher, in my opinion? Failure. You failed 10,000 times. You failed so many more times than me. You're down the road from me. You're down the path. That's how many times you failed. You're a black belt in failure because that's what a black belt is. That black belt signifies, I've been doing this so long, I have failed so many times, you can't count. And every single failure, every single tap, every single injury, every single tournament defeat taught me something that I am now going to teach to you. That's humbling. That's painful. But that's how one becomes a great teacher. That's how one becomes a black belt. That's how one becomes an expert in their craft. Success is predicated on our ability to learn from failure and then use it as fuel to move through whatever stands in front of us in the future. And so again, mistakes are part of life. And then those lessons that you learn from those mistakes are now part of you. They form your thoughts, how you talk about life and how you make your choices. And so for Musashi, things don't happen to you. They happen for you. And maybe that's the most important thing about this then. Stop saying, why is this happening to me? It's not. It's happening for you. You're not the victim. You made a choice and this is the consequence. And you can say, well, but I didn't choose to be mugged. Yes, but you did choose to get out of bed, leave the house and go downtown and walk down that sidewalk. That was your choice. And so what just happened happened for you. Now it's up to you to suss out what you're supposed to learn from that because I'm not going to sit here and glibly say, hey, you know, be happy when you get robbed because you can learn from it. I wouldn't want to be mugged on the street and have a gun put in my face. I don't want to have my house broken into while I'm not home. So I'm not going to sit here and just casually be like, hey man, it happens to It's not happening to you. It's happening for you. That is true in a broad sense. But after the experience, you have to figure out this happened for my benefit. What did it teach me? What can I learn from this, right? Maybe it's, I got to conceal and carry. I don't know. Maybe I don't go to that area anymore. Maybe I need to learn that material possessions aren't more important than my life. It taught you something. You're just not focusing on what it's teaching you because you're not focusing on what's happening for you. You're happening on what's happening to you. You're playing the victim. And as you play the victim, it then blinds you to pulling out from that, being thoughtful about the experience and saying, what can I learn from this? So we dig through the discomfort, we dig through the pain, and then we find the underlying lesson there. And one reliable way then that you can free yourself from regret, look back on an action or a choice that you made that was embarrassing, regrettable, shameful even, and promise yourself, this will never happen to me again. And then figure out how to make sure that that never happens again. What's your plan? What's your strategy? What's your tactics? Musashi said that on his deathbed. That's what he wrote on his deathbed. So therefore, he's now at the very, very, very end. He's standing with the door to death open and he's saying, he's writing this down and saying, here, this is what I want to give to you before I die. Which is, I need to teach you about humility. I need to teach you about compassion. I need you to teach, I need to teach you about discipline. And this is how it happened for me. 
this is my, my last will and testament. That's what the dokodo is. The way of walking alone is his last will and testament. This is everything I've learned in my life, ground down and summed up with the most economic of words so that you can pass it on into perpetuity. And it's 2023 and we're still reading it. And so I want to talk about that today. I wanted to hopefully help you if you do struggle and suffer from regret to learn from it so that you don't suffer and struggle from it anymore. But accept it's a natural part of life. It's a natural part of everybody. Everybody has regret because it's an emotion and we're all emotional creatures. And that doesn't have to then cripple you to the past or the future, especially in the present tense. The past is gone beyond recovery and the future doesn't exist. It's not real. There's only right now, this present moment. So whatever you're doing right now, how can you improve right now? How can you grow and better yourself right now by being thoughtful and learning from those past choices that led you to regret them? And maybe it's a lifelong pursuit like it is for me. Maybe it's something that, again, it's never going to be perfected. You're never going to be a finished product. It's always striving on the path. But that for Musashi is what life is. It's the path. From birth to the grave is the path. It's the way. It's the road. And on that road, on that path, you're going to make bad choices. And you're going to end up falling into one or the opposite ditch constantly. But don't stay in the ditch. Don't get in one ditch and then throw rocks at the other ditch. Get up, climb out of the ditch, get back on the path and keep moving forward. And then ask yourself, how did I fall off the path that time? Learn from that so that the next time you're tempted to fall off the path in the same way, you say, no, 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 no. I know what this is. I remember this. I'm not going to do it this time. No way. You resist the temptation to jump back in the ditch because you learned from it from the last time, which means then the next time you fall into the ditch, it's going to be a completely new reason why. You lean into that. You learn from that and you ask, what lesson am I supposed to learn from this? Don't think of it as what's happening to you. Think of why it's happening for you. And again, in the moment when you're emotional, it may be impossible to do that. Totally acceptable, totally understandable. But after the emotions die down a bit, reflect, be thoughtful and ask, why did that happen for me? What am I supposed to learn from this so that I can improve and grow moving into the future? Ultimately, I hope for all of us, it's so we can help other people. We can help other people not leave the path, not stray, not fall into the ditches. Because ultimately, I think that's how we all get better. That's how we all grow and improve. Is if I show you compassion, if I get on the show today and I give you the best that I've got right now, the best of my thoughts, the best of, of how I express myself, the best of my energy, my attention, I hope then and by giving you Musashi, who I think is one of the best at, at talking about this and explaining it. I hope then that by my putting my best forth and giving you what I think is one of the best guys on this topic, you can walk away and now you're better. Or you can take this and apply it and become better. And then you'll do it to somebody else. And like I'm always hammering on, we don't have to change the world. But if we can change one person's life, for the better today, we have changed the world. And I think if we can help one person who's struggling with regret, learn this from Musashi and apply it and embrace it and live it with us or apart from us, 
that is a message that resonates with people because we all live with regret. Again, it's a human emotion. It's natural to everybody. Everybody has regrets, which means every single person that you meet today has regret for something or someone. And so just talking about this one subject with them, which may seem like a very small thing, will open up a Grand Canyon vista of other things that you can then talk about or think about more deeply. And so just by reading one paragraph out of some script that somebody wrote hundreds and hundreds of years ago, we can change the world. And I think that's worth, that's worth striving for. I think that's a noble cause. And so I hope then that this was that for you. I hope you benefited from it. I hope you don't have regrets about listening to this episode today. And as always, I thank you. I thank you for listening. I thank you for following me. I thank you for passing the podcast on to other people and recommending it to other people. It always weirds me out when I run into somebody at the gym or at church or on the street who's like, hey man, I listen to your podcast. I'm like, um, this is awkward. Um, <laughs> I sit in here and talk to the wall and there's other people listening. So for all, those, all of those people out there, all of you out there who listen and benefit from this, good. I'm grateful for that. I thank God for you. I appreciate you. And I'll talk to you again real soon, Space Monkeys. Peace.